Hello and welcome to the Oxfam podcast, the show where we share our latest learning in the sector. I am Marina Torre and I'm the male lead for Oxfam GB. Today's episode is part of our Real Geek series where we talk about how research, measurement and evaluation are essential tools in improving the impact of our work. This show will be focusing on the challenges in measuring women's empowerment and the learning from Oxfam's impact evaluation. At Oxfam, we've been working in women's empowerment for a long time and it's a common thread in our program work. In the effort to document and learn from our programs, Oxfam GB has conducted over 22 effectiveness reviews in 19 different countries under the thematic area of women's empowerment. A significant part of this journey has been dedicated to learn and document how to measure this hard-to-measure outcome. So how can we measure women's empowerment? What methodologies are used and how? And how can we learn from these studies to really change the way we work in this field? I have with me Simone Lombardini, who is going to talk us through how he's been working in this area. Simone is Oxfam GB's impact evaluation lead. He has almost 10 years of working experience in conducting rigorous evaluations and research in over 18 different countries, including leading over 10 experimental and quasi-experimental impact evaluations on women's empowerment. As part of this effort, he's also leading Oxfam's investment in measuring women's empowerment in impact evaluations. So first of all, welcome, Simone. Let's start with a bit of background. What has been the journey so far in measuring women's empowerment? Can you tell us when have we started measuring women's empowerment and why? Sure. Thanks, Marina. I'd say that the uh, investment in uh, measuring women's empowerment in impact evaluation started back in 2011 when the effectiveness review project started. The effectiveness reviews are part of the global performance framework. We're, every year, we randomly select a number of mature projects and we conduct an in-depth impact evaluation. These impact evaluations are conducted under five different thematic areas, which are reflecting Oxon's work. And one of these thematic areas is women's empowerment. So back in 2011, my colleagues, when they started this journey, they started asking questions like, well, what is women's empowerment and is it something that we can measure? And if yes, how can we then apply it into these impact evaluations? We've been heavily influenced by uh, the way the Women's Empowerment Index in Agriculture, which was developed by IFPRI and OFI. This is a multidimensional index, which is defining 10 indicators divided in, a, in five dimensions. And uh, it was providing a very useful uh, tool as it was providing one concise measure of empowerment, which could then be applied with a sampling framework and uh, provide an overall measure of empowerment. In conducting these uh, effectiveness reviews, my colleagues, they quickly changed and adapted the, the way uh, so that it could be context-specific. Over time, then, what what my colleagues have done is to then start recognizing additional uh, indicators, so not limiting themselves to the 10 indicators and five dimensions, and they're starting adding a sort of a, a suite of different indicators that could be used uh, in the different countries where these impact evaluations were taking place. And that was the, the situation where we had this uh, multidimensional context-specific index. Uh, something that we realized, though, is that this became a sort of a never-ending list of indicators that were drawing with different frameworks and different dimensions attached to it. We started revising and uh, rethinking about the framework. And uh, at the time, we were heavily influenced by a paper that was commissioned by DFID and was uh, produced by ODI, which consisted in a, in a review of all the different methodologies used for measuring women's empowerment. There we found the definition, which we found quite powerful and useful when we are working with, uh, with different people, which 
are coming from different backgrounds and for which English might not be their first language. So we wanted something that was understandable and, uh, and people could easily relate to. And uh, so we identified this uh, definition, which defines women's empowerment as a process whereby lives of women and girls transform, are transformed from a situation where they have limited power to a, to a situation where power is improved. And this is maybe is not as comprehensive as other definitions of women's empowerment that uh, can be found in the, in the academic literature. But this was a definition where everyone uh, could relate to. Attached to this definition, we identified a framework divided in three levels of change. The first one at a personal level, which is referring to changes that are taking place within the person. A second level of change at the relational level, which is looking at changes taking place between the individual and the surrounding uh, of the person. And a third level of change called environmental level change, which is taking place in the broader context. Thank you for that. So that's very interesting to hear about that. And I'm curious then in terms of what exactly are you measuring within this framework? So can you give us some examples of any of those dimensions that you refer to? So as I said, the, the framework is defining three levels of changes. What we do in every single evaluation, in every single impact evaluation that we conduct, is basically starting with, a, with an evaluation design workshop where we invite Oxfam staff, partners, and uh, as much as possible also project participants to uh, try to identify what are the characteristics that are describing an empowered woman in the context of the, of the project. And, uh, and in this workshop, there is, there is a process where we're basically identifying these characteristics. And, uh, and these characteristics, they don't have to, to refer to characteristics linked to the theory of change of the project. We want to have an overview uh, which is going beyond what the project was trying to change. Once we identify these characteristics, then we assign specific indicators trying to measure these characteristics, and we assign them within the, within the framework itself. Back in 2015, we, we wrote these, uh, these guidelines, how to measure women's empowerment, precisely to try to, to share what are the most commonly used indicators, and most importantly, how to measure them. So that's very interesting. In terms of the process you described, can you give us some more specific examples, maybe? And I would like to bring three examples on uh, on areas where we've been experimenting. The first one is on uh, uh, time use. Oxon We Care program invested a lot on how to measure time use and uh, attitudes around uh, care within the household. A lot of the preliminary thinking for the household care survey came from the effectiveness review, so it was piloted there. And I can bring one example in uh, Indonesia, where we even uh, conducted an uh, A-B testing exercise within the questionnaire itself where half of the respondents were provided with, a, with one design of the, care, of the time use module, and half, half of the sample was provided with a, with a shorter one. Another area of uh, experimentation is around uh, decision-making, how to measure household decision-making and decision-making from, from the respondent. So we've been highly uh, influenced by a blog post that uh, uh, Richard Glenister and Claire Walsh wrote a couple of years ago uh, on the JPAL blog, where they were basically challenging the sector in trying to find different measures. The latest effectiveness reviews that we conducted in, uh, in Ethiopia, which was a randomized controlled trials looking at the 
the impact of a honey value chain intervention in Ethiopia. We, we decided to, to challenge ourselves in finding different measures for household decision making. And uh, with the help and support of uh, two researchers, one being Cecilia Poggi, a researcher from uh, IFD and uh, Sussex University, as well as Rob Fuller, an evaluator that used to work with us. Then we, we decided to add to the, to the questionnaire additional questions. So we stick to the, to the standard design, so asking in your household who normally makes most of the decision about this area. And let's say, for example, one area is whether you personally can travel to visit relatives outside. And then what we did is, later on in the questionnaire, trying to find a, a scenario, and we tried to build a, a vignette, which was trying to capture the same area of decision-making, but in a different way. So what we did was identifying, while well, constructing this question, which is saying, Imagine a relative living in a neighboring community asks you to go and help their family just for the afternoon for an urgent matter. Your husband is not with you. What would you do? And then different options that are ranging from I would go without asking permission to I would call my husband to inform me I'm going. I would first call my husband asking permission and then I would wait my husband to come back and ask permission. So different level of, uh, of decision making. And what we are currently doing with the, with the help of these two colleagues is to try to understand what are the different predictors of explaining when certain respondents appear to be empowered with one design versus the other design. It's brilliant. I'm, I'm fascinated by the work that you've been doing in refining the standard approach that you described in order to get a more nuanced picture and nuanced information and, and deeper you know, understanding of what's behind the actual answer. So that's, that's really, congratulations. I mean, I'm, I'm really impressed. That sounds really good. Is there any other example you would like to add? To yeah, maybe a third area is around exposure to violence. And that's an area that is coming from the fact that in our impact evaluations, we're always trying not just to measure what the project was trying to achieve, but also possible negative unintended effects. So again, we've been inspired by, by a blog post from uh, two researchers from, uh, from UNICEF, Amber Peterman and Tia Palermo, who've been using uh, new survey design methods for uh, measuring uh, gender-based violence called uh, list randomization. Basically, with this approach, you are not directly capturing if the respondent was exposed to violence, but you're basically embedding the hard-to-measure indicator, the violence indicators, within a bundle of non-sensitive questions, so that the, even the numerator is not, cannot tell if the respondent has been exposed to violence. So this wanted to be a, a sort of an exercise for us to understand if we can explore alternative measures for this really important uh, outcome, which by its, by its nature is really hard to measure and it requires, well, it requires a really thorough process to, to enable to support the data collection process. Can I go deeper into one specific aspect of the things you described mm -hmm. so far? I'm curious about the approach that you take in uh, the effectiveness reviews in relation to the specific uh, dimensions that you just described, so the gender-based violence, but also the household decision-making. 
In terms of any guidance you may provide or you may stick to in terms of how the interview should be conducted. So, and I'm just saying this because when you were talking about the uh, interview uh, and the data collection related to the uh, decision making within the households, I immediately thought that a number of debates which are uh, quite common in the sector related to guidelines on how to conduct interviews and how what are the pros and cons of trying to have a one-to-one -one interview for example with a with a woman member of the house and whether that is possible whether that is advisable whether that is uh, something you can actually do or you can't because the men in the household would like to be present even if in theory is not supposed to be there so I'm, I'm just curious if there is any guidance or recommendation you would like to share with us or any lessons learned let's say during data collection, if there is a numerator arriving into the house and asking to interview a woman, and the husband or a man is around, sometimes there is a bit of a tension if the husband wants the man or the man in the household also wants to be interviewed or wants to be around and understand and listen what is being said. And this, of course, can create a bias in, uh, in the results and, uh, and in the answers that we might get. So the questionnaire itself is designed so that the initial half, well, the first half of the questionnaire is around the household-level information, so very boring information about how many people are living there, how, uh, what is the material of the roof, what is the material of the, of the floor, uh, how many assets the household own, so that even if the husband is around and want to listen, they might find the, the questionnaire not particularly interesting and might uh, go away. Uh, by themselves. If not, the enumerators are trained to very politely ask if they can have a bit of privacy. And if that's not possible, there are sections of the questionnaire where the enumerators are instructed to don't ask questions, particularly around violence or particularly around certain areas where the fact of asking the questions themselves can put at risk the respondent, which is definitely something we don't want to do. So we rather don't get the information rather than put it at risk the people we are interviewing. Another thing we check, uh, especially in the first few days, is that if we see that some enumerators are never skipping certain sections, then it's kind of a red flag saying, are you sure you're following the protocol that is asking to skip questions if people are around? Another point is related to an area of work that is being led by one of our impact evaluation advisors, select secretary, where she's been exploring how to conduct gender and impact evaluations in a way that is giving us information on how the impact of the project differs by the gender of the, of the person. And that requires a bit of thinking in terms of how to conduct sampling. And one of the, of the strategies that were tried were to randomize the gender of the respondent within the household. So for half of the, of the sample, we wanted to interview male decision-making within the household, and for the other half, the female uh, decision-making. And this is creating some interesting, a sort of a natural experiment in uh, looking at what are the, what is the gender effect of the numerator interviewing someone from the same gender or from a different gender. So you mentioned briefly before that a meta-analysis had been carried out. I'd be very curious to hear what have we learned through that exercise. So we conducted our first meta-analysis back in 2016, where we brought together all the 16 impact evaluations that were conducted on randomly selected 
Oxon projects under the thematic area of women's empowerment. And what we learn from that meta-analysis is that by looking at the overall index, the index that we described at the beginning of this discussion, Oxon projects seems to have a positive and significant and statistically significant effect on women's empowerment. And this effect is estimated to have to be on a 0.32 standard deviations. This is looking at the overall index. What the meta-analysis also did was then zooming in into different indicators and different characteristics of empowerment. And, uh, and what it found is that project had an overall positive and significant impact on changing women's opinions about their economic role. But there was no evidence on uh, increasing women's contribution to household income, nor overall positive changes in power dynamics within the household. And uh, again, this is linking to, is this a matter of uh, how we measure women's empowerment? Or is it that decision-making within the household is something really hard to change and it takes more than what uh, these projects are doing? Where we do see an impact, a positive and significant impact, though, is on a woman's participation and influence within the communities. So even if there is no measurable impact within the household, it's very clear that there is a shift in power dynamics within the communities. Something else that was picked up by the meta-analysis is the overall negative impact on indicators measuring women's exposure to violence. And this is, requires a, a, a deeper discussion to try to understand what that means. So on the surface, it seems as if project interventions are increasing the likelihood that a woman is exposed to violence. And, uh, and this is not something new in the literature. It's something that is plausible if you think that empowerment, what it means is shifting power dynamics. And unfortunately, violence might be an unintended negative effect that comes as a reaction from certain individuals who feel threatened by this change in power dynamics. So, so something that was interesting from a methodological point of view is that if we were looking at individual impact evaluations, we couldn't see a significant difference between uh, project participants and the, and the comparison group. It's when all these data are brought together, then we could see then a negative and significant effect. So this is this is really showing the power of meta-analysis of bringing together different sources of, of information. Say that it's also entirely possible that these, these results are driven by our measurement approaches. And um, a lot of the projects evaluated, they also have a component around raising awareness of violence. So the intervention itself is, is creating connection between, between women. So it's possible that what we are observing here is not actual increase of violence, but higher awareness of episodes of violence. So what we are doing now is uh, in collaboration with uh, Ali Nimo, a researcher from uh, uh, Birmingham University, is to, after three years on, from when this first meta-analysis was conducted, is to go back to the data, including also the latest impact evaluation conducted, and trying to understand, is this, uh, are these results driven by methodological point of view on how we measure exposure to violence, or are driven by something that is really happening from the ground? As a final question, Simone, I would like to ask you what's next. So what's next in terms of measuring women's empowerment? What are your plans? What's in the pipeline? So as we discussed earlier in, through the journey, so we, we've shown how the team went from using a fairly standardized 
measure for women's empowerment into something that was context-specific. Context-specificity grounded in a, into a participatory process from different peoples, including Oxfam staff, partners, as well as uh, women directly involved into the project. What we realized, though, is that in this process, the people that were able to participate, there were a self-selected group of women that were already empowered in the sense that they had the self-confidence, the knowledge, the expertise in uh, engaging this sort of discussion. And we were not grounding our, our process into the reality of all women involved to the study. So what we are currently doing is, well, what we did was establishing a, a research collaboration with uh, Natalie Quinn, a researcher from Oxford University, who's been helping us in developing a participatory index for women's empowerment, which we piloted uh, in two countries, Tunisia and, uh, and Lebanon, which is making use of a, of a survey feature called uh, a discrete choice experiment. This is coming from the economics literature, especially health economics, and is intending to identify a measure for women's empowerment, which is coming from all the respondents of the survey. So it's, it's really grounded in everyone involved into the study and it's giving them the power to define what empowerment means. As I said, this is something we, we piloted in, in Tunisia and in Lebanon. And now we are working in, uh, together with Natalie in, uh, in order to make these uh, tools accessible for everyone who wants to, to use them. We recognize though that at the moment they're still quite heavy in a sense that you need someone specifically with this expertise in conducting the scriptures experiments to support the process. The ambition is, in the long term, to being able to, to have these tools that are accessible to, to anyone within Oxfam or in the sector, that even if the person does not have the technical expertise uh, required at, at this time. Another area of development is around the, the third level of change, which is looking at changes taking place in the broader environment. And that's where we found that our current measures are probably need the, the most investment in catching up with what is possible to measure. So we have two ongoing research collaborations, one with the Cecilia Poggi that I mentioned earlier, a researcher from FD and Sussex University, that she's developing an area of work around how to measure social cohesion, which is an area where there is still a lot of work that can be done in terms of what it means, social cohesion and trust, and how it can be measured. And the, the final area of experimentation is trying to explore more with these indirect measures that can be used into, into surveys where are not where are asking respondent information in an indirect way, it's less likely to have uh, biases given by social desirability or, or omitting or over-reporting certain, uh, certain outcomes. And that includes an ongoing discussion we have with uh, Ulf Liebe from Warwick University, who was here the other day presenting how to to use multifactorial survey experiments as a part of our work. It's been fascinating to hear you, Simone, speaking about your work in measuring women's empowerment. I found it extremely interesting. In particular, I have learned and I look forward to read more about the Women's Empowerment Index, I think, is the name of the multidimensional index you were referring to and the related definition and all the journey that you've described in order to get to the point and also the ongoing reflection which is being conducted in terms of refining the methodological approach and understanding its pros and cons and therefore what what are the possible and, and having a deeper, deeper reflection in terms of what are the possible 
uh, effects of using one methodology rather than another in terms of the actual findings that we have. I found it extremely brave and needed in the sector, having such a self-reflecting approach on, in terms of methodology. I also found extremely interesting to hear you talking about the specific dimensions of women's empowerment that you described. So the decision-making within the household, the gender-based violence and the time use. And again, finally, talking about the meta-analysis that you described to us the learning generated through that exercise, I think it's so valuable uh, in terms of program design and the lessons learned through that exercise. I'm sure they have such a great potential in terms of learning um, that can be applied to program design. So it's been a very, very interesting conversation. Thank you very much for that um, and for making the time to speak with me today. I would just like to remind to those who are listening that if you would like to delve into the wealth of information that has been shared in this show, please see the description of this episode for the links to useful resources. You can also go to our policy and practice website, which has a lot more from the Real Geek series and where you can find all our evaluations. And remember, if you don't want to miss the next episode in this series, subscribe to the Oxfam podcast on your usual podcast provider. Thank you very much for listening.